the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences is excited to return to Europe with the latest DICE Barcelona conference, hosted at the beautiful W Barcelona Resort. This three-day event offers a relaxing resort atmosphere in which attendees will be treated to insightful speaker programming, roundtable discussions, and networking opportunities. Mark your calendars now to make sure you attend this premier networking event taking place September 4th through 6th. For more details, go to DiceEurope.org. Hey everybody, I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On today's episode of The Game Maker's Notebook, I got to totally geek out with Scott Lane, who's the game director of Amazon's New World MMO. And I say geek out because I put a lot of hours into New World, and I was able to pepper Scott with burning questions I've had as a player about their crafting system, their combat, their faction system, and much more. But Scott also shared important lessons that he and the team have learned about what it takes to build and launch such a giant game. Among other things, he went over how the team handles the live content pipeline, how they convert internal and external feedback into smart decisions. And most importantly, he shared sage advice for any team developing or thinking about developing live services games. Please join us. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to start by saying I am a big New World fan. Uh, I've played a lot, and I've been wanting to talk to you uh, for for a while now to ask you lots of questions about the game. But before I get to asking you questions about the game, I'd love to know more about your path to New World and and your background. I mean, first of all, have you always been a gamer? Yeah. Before I start, I just, you know, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm also a fan of your your games and your work. And uh, one thing that's going to be interesting, when I looked your name up today, I realized you were born the day before me. So my oh. stories, when we go talking about growing up in games, I think we're going to have a lot of similarities. It's gonna be okay. So, wait, so you're July 6th? Is that? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, um, so, I mean, how far back do you want me to go? I mean, because I think for me, it all started when like Space Invaders, I think, was my first foray into playing games. And, and from there forward, I was I was hooked, man. I was sneaking to the bowling alley or the local restaurant, wherever I could get my hands on video games until they started coming into the household, which I'm probably guessing you had a similar past. Very similar, except I think I think my experience was with the Odyssey. I, I might have played a few games in a in a you know, cinema where they actually had Space Wars uh, hanging out. But the Magnavox Odyssey is what hooked me in Pong, really. Oh, yeah. Well, I had that and I played it. But I think the graphics, the jump to the, you know, when Space Invaders and then eventually Missile right. Command and Zaxxon and Galaga and all those things came along, it, it hooked me. And we, you know, when the Atari came out and television, all of that, we were playing nonstop. And it was, it was funny because I never, ever in my wildest dreams thought I about making games. We were playing them so much. Did you, uh, what was the first time you, you jumped into an MMO? My first, oh, it was World of Warcraft. 
Uh, I was like a day two World of Warcraft player, and I was a huge RPG gamer before that, um, especially growing up. Like, I played a ton of RPGs, and I loved it. But when I got into World of Warcraft, I just uh, couldn't believe it. Like, I was – I think that game is a, is a masterpiece. Uh, at the time, it was the best thing I'd ever played. I played, and, uh, and I loved it. And the, the thing that was really interesting to me is when I got to 60, I had stopped playing. I thought the game was over. Hmm. And I was sad, so I went back to just see what was going on. And my, my guild is like, no, 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 come on, try this endgame content. And I, I had no idea what that was. And they pulled me back in, and I realized, like, I had just barely scratched the surface on the game and played years and years and years after that. How, well, the game has continued to evolve. I mean, what are the, some of the things that you've seen in World of Warcraft or other MMOs that have been good lessons for anybody who, who is moving into that genre? It's hard because um, some things seem like great ideas at the time, and then later you end up regretting them. Like, I, I remember uh, how badly I wanted a flying mount in World of Warcraft. And I loved it, but it did change the experience for me because I was all of a sudden, you know, just dropping in. Once you got to the level that allowed it, you could just drop in and get all the things you wanted, and you lost that sense of journey through the experience a little bit. Yeah. They, they, they got really good at designing around that later, but I think early on it was it changed things. Or... Or another decision like that, I kind of look back on and I, it, it made my life better, but it took away some moments. And one of them was uh, when they added pickup groups for expeditions or for dungeons, I mean. Um, it was great because I could quickly go do any dungeon and get to that content. But um, one of my favorite moments in WoW, when I look back and I think back of the early days was when there'd be like, you know, 40 of us or 20 of us meeting at Upper Blackrock. And we'd see 20 horde, we were on the Alliance side, and it would just take one person to throw a punch and then it would be on and you'd forget about the ex, you know, the dungeon. And it would just become this big, crazy fight. It was like those moments went away. And I thought those were some of the more memorable, like water cooler moments in the game for me. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I, let's, we'll, we'll get back to sort of your MMO career. And I just, how, how did you get to Amazon in the first place? What, what was your path to Amazon? You mean like the whole history or just the... Well, what were some of the what were some of the highlights of your MMO career prior to coming to Amazon? Well, I didn't go to Amazon to make MMOs. That wasn't like my direction. I actually I went to Amazon to make to learn how to make mobile games because I I had missed the old days of making games where like five or six of us could make a game together. No kidding. Okay. Um, you know, so I was like, oh, let's go make like I'd like to get get into mobile a little bit, and then. Uh, Amazon bought Twitch and they, they made this whole big effort into AGS and they were talking about expanding into uh, different genres. And I was playing a lot of survival crafting games at the time. Uh, Daisy was probably the one I played the most of the, the mod on. Um, it was it was a mod called Daisy back in the day. Um, and we started talking about, wow, what would this like look like at scale and how can we grow this? And so we started like pushing that idea further and further over time to try to see like what kind of a cool game we could make. And then when you start tying that to MMOs you've played in the past and bringing more and more of the MMO mechanics in, it started kind of pushing us down this path. Mm. Okay. And was there a, a, some ignition point where a, a bunch of y'all got together and just said, okay, we gotta, we gotta move this direction. We wanna, let's make an MMO now. Yeah, it was, it was, we were, um, we were full survival crafting for a while and we kept, running into like the, we were bringing more and more players were coming in and they were falling in love with the IP and the island, but they didn't want to do the PVP part. 
They didn't want to do that. They wanted more of the storytelling. They wanted more of the questing, more of that experience and seeing more of that. And when we started looking at the numbers, it, be, it was a majority of our players, uh, which, which was kind of funny because before that, I, I didn't really think about embarking down the, the MMO path. I was like, oh, this is big and this is something like that's, you know, hasn't been done a lot by a lot of people. But our, lead, our, our creative director at the time had worked on World of Warcraft for 10 years. And we had a bunch of MMO people, uh, people with MMO backgrounds in the studio. I had a lot of RPG game background. So I understood how like the game systems and the mechanics would work together, but bringing it to a bigger space, uh, we were lucky we had people that did that. And so we started talking about it and realizing, wow, we could actually, we could actually pull this off and we have the, the power of the Amazon cloud behind us. It'd be kind of cool to, to try to push it that way. So that's what we ended up doing. So I didn't, I didn't realize that. So I thought that your idea from the very beginning was to create an MMO with all of the features that exist now. So it didn't start that way. So what was it? Who was, what were the group of players that you had who were giving you that feedback, who you were tracking to make those decisions? We had an alpha running and we were a couple groups. We, we would bring streamers in a lot. Like we would probably bring uh, groups of 20 streamers in every few months just to just to kind of talk about the game and what's fun to stream, what shows well, what, you know, to get more impressions. And the more people we talked to and the more we were kind of running ideas past, the more they were saying, well, wouldn't it be fun if we could do more questing and more of this and more of that? And then when the alpha went live, we had a survey and we were watching the telemetry and we saw that uh, more and more people, like I, I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was enough that we were like, this is definitely worth like serious conversation. What did that change about your team structure, if anything? Oh, a lot. Uh, we didn't have quests at that point. So we built a quest team. We had to um, learn how to storytell. And, and I think your content, you build your content a little differently because you want your, your, the world has to also tell a different kind of a story when you're, when you're building that kind of a game. So it, we, we, we changed the whole dynamic of the team and, and our backend infrastructure had to be different. We had to look, relook at how we built the content. Cause one of the things that, that, that one of the really cool things about this was bringing that, that different combat style to the MMO space, right? We already had combat we felt really good about, especially at scale. When we were having larger and larger battles, it felt good and it felt better. And then we started, you know, for me who played MMOs, I'm used to the tab target move around, get in your spell rotation, do this and that, right? Uh, this allowed us to change that gameplay, but to have these massive wars and these interesting combat elements with it. And, and it also the, let us put, like we had this big, deep crafting system built from the survival crafting thing. And that allowed us to bring that over and really push that element into the MMO space, which, which I wouldn't say is super innovative. Some games have done it, but the way we did it, I think is a little different. Absolutely. Your crafting is, I think, my favorite part of the game. Well, actually, sorry. Crafting and combat. The two things you mentioned really, to me as a player, stood out from the very beginning as a different approach, especially to combat. I mean, like you said, tap target is the, the way. And it seems like maybe it was even a risk early on to try something that was more action oriented. Was Is that how you all thought about it? Or was it just, hey, this is great. Let's go with it. We had huge confidence that it would be fun if we could make it work technically. The risk was at scale getting, you know, that many people and trying to have, you know, precise collision 
with, uh, you know, even, even having projectiles flying through the world as opposed to everything being kind of dice rolled behind the scenes. Yeah. What were some of the challenge? But did that did that create some constraints for you early on? Yeah, but like most early designers, you kind of blow past those and try to get your tech to help work through them, which which we, we definitely made some serious mistakes there. But I think uh, as we got the alpha going, we really started to understand where our constraints were with, you know, number of GDE elements in the world and things like that, I think are the big ones. Mm -hmm. um, but it another, I think, good quality for designers is, you know, once you understand the constraints in the box, you fill it up with as much as you can, right? So yeah. you push as much into that box as you can once you get the constraints. What was one of the constraints early on the, um, your kind of your skills directed weapons where, you know, you, you have your, your weapons that have a primary and secondary push. Uh, I'm not sure what would you would say is stat that influence them. Was that part of the system early on the combat system? Yeah, we always had the idea of having uh, either attributes or perks, I think is what you're referring to. Yeah, sorry, that's, that's right. Every weapon has a couple of different, one primary perk and then a second one that... Yeah, that and, and now we actually have, uh, as you get higher and uh, higher quality items, you can get up to three perks, four perks now. Gotcha. So there's even more. And that becomes a lot of the chase in the game is to try to get the best four perks on the weapon that you want that match up with the attributes you want, attribute bonuses. All right. I'm actually talking about the attributes. So that's yeah. so strength, dexterity, et cetera, right? So those are the drivers for the, yes. what I was, was you, you created a system that at least for me as a player was pretty easy to understand. Uh, my question was from the very beginning, was that a balancing tactic for you? Something that you, you wanted or did that evolve? Um, we always liked it. And then a lot of it goes back to like D and D, right? Like to the old, old school yeah. way you think about game systems. But the one thing that, uh, the one, the one area we didn't get to soon enough that we had regrets about was focus. We wanted to make sure we had enough, like, like strength, everything kind of pairs up with, right? Constitution's pretty clear. Intelligence is pretty clear, but we needed to make sure focus had equal footing. So that took us uh, a little bit after launch, but we did get the void gauntlet in yeah. to pair up with the life staff. And then it became like this really fun, fun thing. So now I think that they're pretty evenly balanced. I'm sure players won't totally agree with that. Everyone thinks there's a different meta in the game. You know, that's what's so funny is uh, it's true. You, when I, when my son and I played a lot, we would always be looking at that, looking at what people thought the meta was and experimenting with all the different combinations. Uh, just so you know, I'm a hatchet battle X medium armor guy. Uh, but I did try battle X life staff because I was really interested in that support slash the, the cool combination of a support yet aggressive class. And what I really liked was that there did seem to do seem to be a pretty wide array of variety, you know, that you can you can try out in combat. Like it's not just it's not just a support class anymore or a tank. It's you get a lot of cool, unique combinations. Well, and it allows like that build you just mentioned, it gets you extra survivability when you're doing PvP, right? Yeah, totally. Um, um, yeah, I, it's funny. I. I learned like one of the things I found when I played a lot of World of Warcraft was if I played a tank or a healer, I know I'd get into uh, instance content a lot faster. So I tend to always start with one of those two classes when I'm playing a game because I know that's going to make my life easier later. So I've, I've been playing sword and board a lot okay. paired with the, uh, with the hammer. 
But my next character, I'm going to go full heel and just play around with that for a while. I, I'm the kind of when I'm when I'm playing these games, I need to play it for months. Like I play a lot, and I want to get way into the build, really understand, and then try to optimize as much as I can. I, I find it I find it awesome. So I I switch about every two or three months. I'll do a full build switch on my player. Well, let me ask you about the the healer build. What what does it say about you uh, as a person if if you gravitate towards or want to try being a full-on healer? I, I only ask this because I've never done that. And I, it's always been fascinating to me because I just want to go out and kill things, but maybe that's just me. Well, it's fun killing things, but I think, again, like, uh, it depends. Like, I when I was in WoW, I played a healer primary. It was my primary for a long time. And, and one of the challenges was I tried to go into a raid and say, can I heal though? Can I be the only healer in this raid? Let me see if I can keep everyone up. And it would be about the challenge. So I think that's a big part of it when you're when you're playing a healer, right? It's uh, it's kind of like an offensive lineman. People don't really notice you unless you do something wrong, and then it's always your fault, right? You, like, you kind of broke it. So I, I I think the challenge in it is where is what pulls me to wanting to play it. And again, I'm selfish. I don't want to wait for content. Always, I want to get in as fast as possible. And everyone needs a healer. That okay? Does do your teams? sort of proclivities influence how, uh, influence the emphasis on various kind of builds that y'all support in the game. Even though I know, I know you don't have specific builds, but there are certainly builds that evolve from your decisions. We, we try not to. I mean, you, you try to get rid of all those biases. And I, I usually try to always take the position of something I don't play when we're talking about that. Um, especially because I don't want to influence the meta because I, I don't consider myself like a great player where I can push everything as far as a lot of the other people. We do tease our combat lead about that every now and again, though. So we give him a little grief. I'm like, what are you playing? I always ask him what he's playing every time a patch comes out, just so I can keep him honest. Well, that's a great, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, you're right. I mean, because we all have biases and it's really hard to, to avoid them. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, I want to go back to something else that you mentioned crafting, right? And, and that, and I, it's, that's one of my favorite aspects of the game. And it is as a, somebody who is probably not, I haven't played every MMO in the world, but it's the best crafting system I've seen. What early on did you want to do to differentiate it from other crafting systems? So I, I love the concept of crafting. I think it's really cool. And especially when we like, again, when we start where we started, but I liked the idea and wanted to have like every kill kind of mean something in the world when you're like, when I'm talking about killing me in AI, every time, like, I want to know that I can go to a different place and get a different material for an a from an AI that matters and to drive me around the world. Because to me, crafting kind of drives exploration because yeah. I'm looking for all of the things to gather and harvest. And, and I just want to touch on part of what I think makes our crafting good is I, I love harvesting in our game. I love just chopping down. Like, it's crazy. My, I find myself like people are like, oh, let's go do a run. I'm like, you know, I just want to chill. I just want to put some music on and go like hit rocks and hit trees for a half an hour, an hour and gather stuff and get in my loops. And it's fun. Right. You know what I mean? So it's fun. I, yeah. I think part of that was really important to us is like chopping down a tree had to feel good. And just to give props to our audio lead, Jed, uh, yeah. the, when he first put like the, the amount of attention to detail he put into every sound on these things. I think it just makes it feel better and it just helps you get like immersed in the world. And, and that's what I think the crafting really drives, at least for me, well, the, well, the, the, the trade skills drive. 
the harvesting, the getting all of the materials for crafting. Because some people actually, they just harvest and sell everything. For me, I harvest and I try to use everything myself that I make. I'm right there with you. I, I feel, I feel there, there's a whole efficiency drive for me where if I've still got, you know, a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, logs in my, or sorry, uh, timber in my inventory and I haven't used it, I feel like I've failed somehow. Uh, so, but, but, go, but going, going back to what you said about the feedback that you get as a player when you're chopping down a tree or mining, man, the audio does make such a difference. And I also share the physics on the trees. It's pretty awesome. When you watch a tree fall, it's just kind of entertaining in, in the game. Well, in, in our audio, Jed, he, he literally went and got the real sound of trees and hitting rocks. Like, and he's got videos of these that he shows the team. And it's, uh, it's impressive. It's fun. You know, he, he really dove. I mean, the, the gun, the musket shots you hear are real muskets. Like he went to a world war, I mean, sorry, to a civil war recreation battle. Okay. They recorded for the whole day and like they, they let him hang out and everything in the that you're hearing is, is pretty much authentic. That's, that's fascinating. I, I, that may be the first truly recorded musket sound in a video game, right? I, I'll, I imagine it might be. Uh, that's well, cool. Same with the cannons. They're real, real cannons that he got. Where do you go? Where in the world can you go shoot a real cannon? Well, they had a, this is funny, in Huntington Beach, six years ago, there was a Civil War reenactment battle, one of the battles they did. And he went and got permission from them to go with his audio equipment and stuff and recorded it all. That's pretty amazing. Wow. And he did a big video for the team and everyone loved it. And it was because he's a character. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, the, I mean, that, that, the, the cannons and the muskets, that sort of evokes another, I, to me at least, very interesting topic, and that is the theme of your game, right? Y'all, y'all landed, you all landed on a really interesting time period and combination of sort of this old world plus magic. And did that, was that in existence from the start? Was that part of the original idea? From the, from the beginning, we loved the idea of, because this was, the way we always described it is, uh, it was like the last a uh, gasp of the sword and shield and the first breath of gunpowder. Like that time was really interesting. Like there, there was a brief period where those existed together. And then if you throw magic in it, we thought like, what could be cooler than that? You know? So I, I think uh, that always seemed fun. And then when you see it, like there's just something that is really neat when you see the musket person next to the person with the sword, and the shield or the bow and arrow, like it's cool. I agree. And that to me as a player really stood out from the very beginning. The first time I heard a new world and saw I think a couple of the PR shots that y'all had of, of somebody with the, one of the old style helmets and an axe. I thought that's, that is not the Dungeons and Dragons uh, approach that I was expecting or the sci-fi Marine. Yeah. This is really unique. Yeah. We loved it. And it was like an, a quick way to be different too. Like nobody was really in this space as far as this time period. And, and I think where the story did evolve is uh, that I'm really, that, that I really was happy with early on was, the idea of this island lost in time and, you know, more and more we're going to be introducing cultures that have ended up there and evolved like, you know, on that island a little differently than maybe in, in, you know, in our real world timeline, but you're going to see other groups on the island. And I think that's really cool. I, I'm so glad to hear that as a player. That's exciting. I've read some of the things that you all have published about what's, what could be coming down the road. And I, it's for me as a player, it's really easy just to lock into what exists without thinking about what's possible. But yeah, it does seem like it's a, I mean, to me, it's a world that's super fertile when it comes to branching off into new, new places. 
Yeah. And it's an opportunity to celebrate, you know, cultures that are not around anymore, right? In a really cool, fun way. So I, I'm, the more we get to that, the more fun it is for us. And that's, that's where a lot of people on the team light up to just thinking about how far we can take that. Well, speaking of that, on a sort of a more production oriented note, how do you make those calls about what you're going to introduce and when? Um, I think it's probably fairly standard. Like you, you come up with the ideas, you kind of, the, the ones you like bubble to the top. There's the, I should say you, the group, there's a group of us, there's a creative leadership team on the, you know, that we all talk about this stuff. And if we like ideas a lot, like before we go too far, we try to socialize them with the team. Yeah. See if, you know, get, get feedback, make sure we're like doing stuff that people are going to be excited about. And quite often we learn that, oh, hey, you know, this one isn't resonating with the team. Maybe we go this way. And then we start to think about what it would look like in a production schedule, when we can deliver it, what's the right time for the game? When do we want to invest in a new world versus uh, another weapon or horizontal gameplay or whatever it may be? And then you, you kind of match that up with your schedule and your people and your capacity and figure out exactly, exactly the right timing. Do you have predetermined slots that you're, that you're planning things to fall into? Like for example, if you have a quarterly, quarterly release, a monthly release, then you get to just move the pieces around? How do, how do you do that? We've been, we've been um, well, shipping a live game was, was a learning experience for sure. We had all kinds of great plans, um, but supporting live always trumps all. Uh, so things change a little bit, but I think where we're landing on is we know that we want to release expeditions or readily accessible content for players, instance content that players can go do. Those have been really well received. They're super fun and they're, they're cool for rewards. So I, I don't want to say we're like locked into quarterly, but I'd like to do those quarterly. Mm -hmm. Still trying to find the right cadence for weapons, for a new introducing a new weapon. We're not sure. We've introduced two since launch. Uh, and the third one is on the way, the great sword's coming here uh, in the future. Um, we're starting to get to like a lot of weapons in the game though. And I don't know that we need to focus more on that versus maybe finding more ways to expand on it or go different directions with what we have. We're not, we're not sure yet. We need, to, we need to put the next one out and kind of see how the response is with the players and how the game's feeling and everything. But we know we want to grow the world, you know, and our, our first step at that is coming up in a few months as well. And again, this will be our first time growing the world since launch. And I just want to see the response from players. Growing the world is a massive investment. Um, so we want to make sure players are really into it and, and agree that's where we should be spending our time going forward. I think it is. Like, I'm pretty excited about it. And it does give us a chance to show off some new stuff. Now, how are you getting that feedback from players? Is that in the PTR or are you getting it elsewhere? Well, when I, you mean, on the, it's, it's once a feature, like the PTR, we get feedback from players for sure. And I think that's more um, short-term directional. Hey, is this buggy? How does it feel? Is it overtuned? Is it undertuned? Like, where do we want to go with it? Once players launch to the broad audience, or once, once features launch to the broad audience, then we start to learn, like, how many people are you, like, when the blunderbuss came out, how many people are using it? What are they thinking about it? How is it changing gameplay? What are they pairing it with? There's a lot of questions that just naturally come up. And then we then we start looking at that data and we we look through a few places like um well one we're we play the game a lot like even when i'm not able to concentrate on playing the game i'll have the game running in the chat just so i can kind of watch what's going on in my world we're in the forums a lot um we read you know reddit we have an in-game feedback tool there's all kinds of ways we get feedback we listen a lot our community team is uh 
just does a great job at helping gather feedback and then filter it back to the team. Well, since we're talking about getting feedback, what is the way that you all filter the, the, the serious feedback from, say, comments that may not be well-informed or just sort of off the cuff? How, how, do you, how do you reach sort of really meaty conclusions? It's hard. We, you know, it's, I'd love to say it's 100% data-driven, but it's, it's really impossible. And when you go through uh, this weapon's over, you'll have 51% of the people saying this weapon's too powerful and 49 saying it's not powerful enough. Yeah. So you have to take that, use your intuition, and then break it down to the next level. For instance, uh, what percentage of people in Outpost Rush are winning with this weapon versus not, like, like things like that. But you also use your gut. Like we, we play the game. Like you get in the world and you watch what's happening and try to, you know, say, is this real? Is this valid? Or what am I missing? We also have uh, an experts group that plays hmm. the game that, that's not part of our team at all. There are actual players that we went and found that are like the big experts in the game. And we just ask them, like, what's your take on this? Like, could you give us some feedback? And they're, they're, we're constantly in a feedback loop with them as well. That's, that's great. So it sounds like a balance of a lot of different things, but I'm glad you mentioned your gut too. I mean, that's, it seems that's why you're an expert in the field, right? And it sounds like you're, because you're playing all the time too, it's just an informed gut decision always. Always. It's just like before the game, like, like, you know, before New World, before, 10 years ago when it was only console games or, or, or ship ga games that ship get you once, you're relying almost all on your gut. You can do some focus testing, you'll bring people in. But at the end of the day, you're trusting, you know, your your leadership team, your creatives, and your whole team to give you the, the right feedback and help break it down because it's it's everything's subjective, right? Yeah, and with that in mind, I mean, how you I, you must have a large team because I, I let me if it's okay to ask. I mean, how many people are actually working on the game to support it? I'm not supposed to go near that one on how many, but it's uh, we have, you know, we have a good sized team. It's it's a pretty big team. So, in, in terms of getting feedback from the team, right? What's what's how do you all do that? Do you have big group meetings? Do you have surveys? It was a lot. It was a, so much easier before COVID, right? Yeah. You just walk around and you, you would have that personal connection with everybody and you could talk to them every day. Uh, now we do a team meeting every two weeks um, where people can ask questions in Slack and then we'll talk back and forth. Uh, we also have a, what we call our sprint showcase every other week as well, where everyone shows off their work and then there's a feedback mechanism in there. Uh, I have a feedback email list. But in truth, if someone doesn't like something, it's pretty much I'll get a Slack direct or someone will say, hey, can I get a one-on-one? -on -one? We want to talk about this. And it happens quite often where like we, we sit down, you know, one-on-one -on -one and talk through it, or I'll invite people to meet with like the creative leads on the team and say, tell us what you think. That's great. Uh, do you ever run into a situation where folks are coming in from say different teams and are intimidated in terms of giving feedbacks or worried about what you um, might think or how you might react? We see a little of that. And that's one of the reasons we have, uh, the, the email that you can email to, it's a, it's like an email, just a channel that you can say, Hey, here's like my thoughts. One of the things we actually ask is whenever a new employee comes on, we'd love them to play the game, you know, get to level 30. Tell us about that experience. Just walk us through what you liked, what you didn't like. And I would hope people aren't intimidated because there's really like never like you really can't go wrong when you're giving your opinion on something. There's no right or wrong. It's it's, it's your opinion, right? It's, sure. it's your truth, however you look at it. Um, and then we also actually, uh, there is one other mechanism I forgot about. We have a Confluence page that anyone can edit. 
And this is always just your thoughts on the latest release or, you know, what do you think of the creative? That's great. That must take a lot of time to parse through both that internal and external feedback. We have uh, teams that help us a lot. Like I said, our community team does a great job at helping with the external feedback. Uh, even though we still like, I, I still can't resist like, you know, have your morning drink and your morning coffee and go hop online and go to Reddit or go to the forums or go to the player insights tool, like to our, to our uh, feedback mechanism in the game. It's something you, you got to do it. Like I think when your game is live, nothing's more important than playing it a lot and then getting that feedback from the players and figuring out how to just, you know, because it's real easy to read the feedback that aligns with what you're thinking. I usually go to the negative feedback yeah. and jump straight to that because that's the, that's the stuff that you're going to take action on, right? I, I suppose so. And, and that leads to another, I imagine, very challenging situation for you in any live service team. When you have people who are getting on who are just, just don't like your game, right? And they're just willing to take additional time to be haters. How do you compartmentalize that? I, you know, it's not, it's not always easy to hear like, like something, like something you work really hard on get, get hammered. But at the end of the day, I, I tell myself, well, they're, they're saying it because they, they care enough to say it, which mm -hmm. means I actually care enough to hear it and at least, you know, take it seriously, move forward with it. Like when I was younger, I wasn't always good at delivering messages to people. And it's something that I've really like self-examined and tried to get better on. Cause I'm a very direct person and I say things and I'm like, when I was younger, I didn't realize, oh, wow, I said that harshly until you started thinking about it. So, but I, I didn't mean I was bad, just meant I, I, that was just how I communicated. So I try to give them the benefit of the doubt I'd give myself, a younger version of myself, and take the feedback uh, with the grain of salt. Like, or take, the, take the negativity with the grain of salt, take the feedback seriously. Well, it's great to hear. It's a, it seems like a great technique to me. I mean, certainly when I, I, I know it's been there, there have been plenty of stories about your launch and the ups and downs. And I got to say, I was really impressed with how you and the team took that feedback and turned it into a lot of really positive improvements for the game. It, yeah, it was, it was, awesome. it was like, like launching a, la launching a live service MMO. Like it's really hard. And, uh, you know, we thought we had the game, like, 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 like when, when you go and you have automated testing, you have all these things and you think that it's in really good shape and you know, you've heard the stories about launches, so you don't want to be confident or like, wow, we've done so much to test this. And then it comes out and you get, when you get that many people at scale playing, they find things that you've never dreamed of. And, and, you know, and there was more than we wanted. Um, I'm happy that we were able to get through and fix them all. Like it's, it's so much like, like the, I think the hardest part about that is when you're, when you're not talking about like the quality of the gameplay and the systems that are in the game, you're more talking about mistakes and bugs and problems. You're, you're, you have to fix those, but you're not making the quality of the experience or the, the gameplay better. You're fixing problems that, that quite frankly, we should have fixed beforehand, right? That we should have caught first. So we had to get through that first three months to make the game like really tight and feel good to where then we could start improving and iterating and doing all of the fun, you know, stuff to make, make combat feel better, balance this, do that. And it was, it was hard, but it was something that you just, you know, you gotta, you gotta grin and bear it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it brings up another uh, question I have about just how you get over that bridge from pre-launch to launch. And if you had to go back and have an audience, the, the perfectly sized audience to help you 
find all those the problems prior to launch? What what would it be? And I, maybe obviously there's no perfect, but what would a reasonably sized alpha beta test group be for you? Well, I think we had we had a lot of people playing the game. Um, I think the thing I would have done is to try to do it longer because mm. a lot of the problems don't get exposed right away. Um, so I think if we would have done it longer and had a little better like telemetry to catch what was happening, a lot of these like mistakes, like we didn't have the proper telemetry to know it was a problem until someone okay. told us. And then over time, we're like, oh, wow, there's all kinds of mistake in, in this part of the, like in this part of stuff. So let's get all of our telemetry in there. And we finally got it to a point to where we, we could catch these things as they were happening and not be chasing them by a few days. So for as advice for anybody who is starting up a large scale life services game, what is, is there a good time period that people should be shooting for? I know it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer because every game is different, but are you, are you talking about uh, six months, a year, three months? I, I think if we had like two or three more months, the first two months caught almost, you know, most of the problems. If we would have had that two months to fix, to catch them and fix everything, I think we would have been in a much better position. It's really hard to say how long because it all depends on, you know, we had a very long alpha, right? We had, our alpha was live for, I think, two years, two and a half years, wow. but we just didn't have the scale in the alpha, right? And uh, it was, it was like I said, running two servers is a lot different than running hundreds of servers yeah. at the same time and seeing these problems developing in different places. Uh, it was, it was tough and we were so busy, like, like it was just, it was a it was a sleepless few months, that's for sure. I'll bet, I'll bet. Well, jumping to a diff completely different topic, one of the, as a as a player, one of the things that attracted me very quickly to the product was that you didn't go for a subscription model, and and you chose premium plus microtransactions. Were was that a hard decision to make? Were you all looking at a whole bunch of different options, and you just landed on this one arbitrarily? Obviously not. Well, we talked about all of them. Um, this being like the first like game from a new studio, we thought that the best model, like the, like we were a brand new team putting out a new game in a genre, like in this genre, we thought that the it made the most sense to do it this way instead of to try to get people to sub up. And we thought it was like, you know, we knew we had a lot of content. We, we knew we had a fair amount of content. And we thought that was a, like, we wanted to make customers feel like they got a value. We wanted the players to say, okay, this is worth it. You know, and for forty dollars, I think you know some people are getting thousands of hours of gameplay. Some people hundreds. Some people tens. That felt like something fair, and I think that was a really good starting point for us. Was let's let's put this out there and try to make sure that we're making the players happy. That we're not we're not trying to price out of it. Yeah, we do have the MTX, and we've tried to also be really good about that from a, like maintaining the quality of the player experience through the MTX. Did you ever talk about? Anything uh, monetizing items beyond just pure customization? Yeah, we have talked about it, and we still we still are talking about it. And I think it's safe to say we will at some point uh, do that. Right now, what we're trying to do is we want to make the experience awesome. Like everything we're doing right now is, is bettering the experience. You know, so I think yeah. over the next few months, there's there's a lot of changes coming in to where I feel like we've got the experience so good. That we can we could even maybe consider some of that, but right now it's 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 more about the experience, making making that leveling experience as fun, make it you know feel the right time, you know like so. It's it's that that's the key I think is 
the better the game gets over time, the more players that will come in, and I think everything will be more fun and better for everyone. Yeah, that, that's great philosophy. And so speaking of players coming back and maybe coming back every day, what are some of the key mechanics that you found keep players coming back every single day? I think, you know, coming back every day or like so to continuing to play. I, I, for me, it's, it's, I don't even know if it's a key mechanic. I, I love being in the world. That's my personal one. I think people, I think the people that are into crafting have a lot of fun diving into the crafting. I think that our uh, outpost rush, our war and our invasion, bigger scale mechanics are really fun. But I'd say lately it's been the expeditions. Our, our expeditions have got, you know, I don't want to sound conf too confident, but they've gotten really good. Um, you know, if you've played Tempest, I think it's a beautiful experience. We, there's, it's just overall, it's a fun experience. It tells a great story. The rewards are good. And I think rewards probably, to, to go back to your question, Yeah. one of the big learnings is getting more rewards, making things more valuable for the player's time. And I think that's something that we've been really focusing on, improving our quality of life and improving, improving the reward loop. Absolutely. Loot drops are everything, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... I, so dumb, dumb question. I just kind of brings me back to a very personal question. Uh, one of the things I've I've been just trying forever is to get better trophies, build better trophies. And oh my God, is it hard to find trophy materials? Yes. Uh, is that I'm assuming is intentional, but uh, do you get that kind of feedback as well from players? Yeah. Trophies are, well, trophies are one that's not, I don't get it as much because you can usually find those materials in the trading post. Expensive though. At least they're on, expensive, yeah. Really and, expensive. Pardon me? At least on my server, they're they're ridiculously expensive. So yeah, they're fairly expensive, and but they're also super valuable, right? Yeah. Like, exactly. So I think that that's where the uh the player-driven economy starts to come into play. Like we we're, we are looking at the tuning on that. It's not our biggest priority. I think like right now we're really focusing on the the leveling XP for crafting and trade skills and weapon mastery, and then the player. Like, like that's the first place we want to look at, but we are doing, we are spending a lot of time taking a look at loot and rewards and stuff like that over the next few months as the, this release is our first kind of step toward that. Okay. The July release. That's well, yeah, you've got, so this is where you're talking about your, the music instruments, right. That are coming in and the, uh, well, the big, the big change that people are responding to so far from the PTR notes is the perk rebalancing. Okay. We're trying to put a lot of effort into making right now. It's, it's a little bit too hard to get the right perks you want on the weapon or the gear piece you have. So we're doing a rebalancing that hopefully the goal is that that should work better. And we're, you know, the PTR launched today. So we're going to start getting some feedback on that over the next few weeks, which is one of the hugely valuable things about the PTR because people can read, here's your goal. Then they can go play and then we can see, Hey, are we hitting our goal or not? with time to adjust before the actual release. Okay. Well, that's, that's exciting. Well, there are a bunch of other things too, that you've listed yeah. at least on the website, uh, like perfect salvages. I thought was a really cool concept. That is, that's another one. Yeah. I mean, uh, salvaging is, is not as fun as it could be in the game today. I think it's going to get much better. And I, it's kind of funny because I'm already seeing anyone who read the patch notes talking about, okay, I guess I'm going to fill all my storages now holding on to everything <laughs> I get until, until the next release. Yeah, which is smart. I mean, it just, it just goes to show how well the crafting uh, economy has been, how well y'all balanced it, right? Because it's meaningful. And, and something else you mentioned too, which I, I love, is the marketplace. Uh, 
I that is one of the, my favorite features in the game, just because it's it's just fun to look at the economics and the swings that occur, and to try to predict them and and play the market. So, when you were designing the marketplace, what were some of the key decisions you made early on about it? I think one of the first things you, that we have to talk about is what you know, the, the, what's bind on pickup and what's sellable, right? And so, I think on the gear side and the crafting side, that, that it's finding that balance to make crafting valuable. And what versus what you find in the world, and then finding a way for players to be able to exchange those goods, mm-hmm. um, and then it's making things accessible through the trading post, which we still have a little ways to go there. Uh, it, it still can be a little bit difficult to find some things, but it's it's monitoring the price. Like, like that's our way to know how the economy is doing, right? That, that's yeah. the step, like you said, into the economy, and it's like like when we had double uh, last, we just we're just getting over double XP refining. I'm sure you noticed, like I know, if you're playing, all of the refining stuff got really expensive because everyone's yeah. trying to buy it all up so that they can they can take advantage of that. Um, so I think I think it's that kind of stuff. Is there like I'm not sure I totally understood the question. Well, I was I was wondering if you all you're, obviously you're tracking the the prices in the market and you're watching trends, right? Uh, are there ever any? This isn't the question I was asking, but I'm interested in it. Are there ever any? sort of wild fluctuations that you have to step in and, and help contain? Well, early on, like when we had, if there were problems happening, yes. Uh, we haven't seen that in a while now. It's been, it's been many months since we've had to, you know, since, since we've exposed a problem in the economy. And it's, it's kind of cool because the economy has worked itself out to now where it's, it seems very healthy. We have, you know, an economist looking at it, of course, so who's much smarter than me when it comes to this stuff. Does your, I mean, does he say, they, do they say that the, the economy in the game actually uses or demonstrates the same mechanics that you would see in a real economy? Not quite yet. A real economy has more drains. And okay. I think we need a few more drains that we're talking about putting in to get it to where it could be even close to that. And real economies don't have caps on how much money you have and things like that. But, uh, but it's, but it's on a trend, it's getting healthier every day. And it feels like we're, we're pretty close to healthy, if not healthy now. Okay. Well, that, it's, I mean, the, the economy also seems very closely tied to, uh, well, not closely, but it's obviously related to factions and companies and their health as well. So when you were designing the, the trading posts and the, just the general economy, how did those fit in to the equation well, for you? The- it's 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 all intertwined when you're thinking about the economy because the the companies are really the, some of the bigger drivers because right. they're the ones that are owning the territories and the land and, and taking off of that. I think um, so. So that was the first thing we have to factor, and that's the thing we're watching the closest. Actually, is you know, are, are they overtuned as far as the money that a that a company can make by owning land or by owning a territory? And I I think the answer is yes right now. And it's so the first part of the equation is. Is it now the hard part is okay? What's the what's the right way to correct this without breaking everything? And that's what we're looking at over the next you know short short amount of time. Well, that'd be fun to watch because in watching, I mean, just seeing the at least the dynamic map and the server I'm on, uh, I've always wondered how much involvement you all have in say preventing one faction from just dominating. Oh. Uh, or or charging exorbitant fees. I mean, it seems like market market mechanics would come into play in that situation, but yeah. but we don't get involved in all at all 
in ownership. And we haven't really done anything about how much they can make other than the initial cap we put in. Yeah. But what we are examining is how, how do we feel about that initial cap? Okay. And that's the thing. But as far as like who owns what, we stay way out of that. And some servers, it's, it's almost an even split. Some there's one faction dominating. But with some of the catch-up mechanics, people are switching over to other factions to help bring that over. Like you're seeing a lot more of that happening. Yeah, which is really cool. I mean, because that that I know that for me is sort of a, it's it's a cool safety valve to if you feel like you're on the losing end, right? Your faction's always just got one tiny slice of the pie, and everybody in this other faction's dominating. Uh, that's great. And I misspoke. I said catch up mechanics. I meant incentives to switch actually, because there are no catch up mechanics right now. But I, but I yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. That maybe maybe it's also worth explaining for anybody who doesn't play New World because I'm jumping in. I'm using all these terms that are very new world specific. And maybe it's worth explaining how companies and factions equate to clans perhaps on in other MMOs. Yeah, in new world, a company is, is akin to a guild in World of Warcraft. It's a group of up to uh, 100 players that can play and socialize together. They have a leader and they can, a company and players are part of a faction. New world has three factions. Um, Companies can own territories. When they do, they can they can charge. They can they can set tax rates and uh, trading fees and things like that. The faction has ownership over the territory as well, and so they're both highlighted. When you're when you're in a company that owns a territory, you get bonuses that are pretty awesome. When you're in a faction that owns a territory, you also get bonuses. So even if you choose not to participate in the territory game, if you don't want to PvP and be a part of the war mechanic. You can still be in a faction and get the benefits. So if my faction owns two territories, I might be able to travel cheaper between them or get trading benefits or things like that. Um, it's a pretty interesting mechanic. It's also something we're watching very closely just to, to make sure like so far we haven't made any real adjustments other than uh, making it easier to switch factions. Because one thing we do like is when people do switch factions and change the dynamic of the board. Yeah. Kind of look at it like a risk board when you're watching like all the territory ownership and the more it changes, I think the healthier and better it feels for the world. Which is great. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a wonderful change. I, but something else that's, that I surprised me when joining was that there are territories that can't be owned by companies or factions, which I thought okay. that was unique. Cause I, I, I thought maybe there was a bug or that you all were just waiting to open up those areas for later ownership. No, those, I mean, I'll never say never because like, you never know where you'll take a design, but the idea of those is like they're owned by the, 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 by the fourth faction, which is fourth and fifth, which is the AI. Yeah. Like those are AI controlled things. So the corrupted drive uh, Shattered Mountain and the Great Cleave and the Angry Earth are in Eden Grove, and they're not really keen on letting a settlement form in those areas. You have little <laughs> outposts, but no big settlements. And the outposts are pretty helpful too. So I, 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 it, it's it's a lot of fun to go up into those areas and and risk risk uh, and, and experience a different level of risk, I, I suppose, than the other ones. Yeah, and we're seeing yeah, and there's I mean there's multiple different levels of risk up there because there's like the open world risk, which is a higher level, and then there's what we call elite POIs, elite points of interest, which are they're kind of like raid dungeons, but open world, and as many people can go in. So a lot of these you can defeat with fifteen to twenty people. Uh, 
this was kind of a happy accident, but what we didn't really expect was groups of 50 or 60 to get together and just go demolish them. <laughs> and it's pretty hilarious. Like, and, and now that's a thing, like people are running through them and it's, uh, it's funny because people are like, oh, should we fix that? And I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty fun. Like if people are having a good time, I, I just assume let them have a good time. It's fun. And I, I participate in it quite a bit. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. That's, I've never tried that. So is that, are, do those groups uh, just form randomly or is it, are they scheduled by the companies? What, how does it work? Uh, both. All kinds of, like sometimes companies have like, uh, hey, we're going to do a world tour. Like it's going to happen at this time every day or uh, groups, you'll just see like, hey, everyone, we're going to form up now. Come meet us here. Um, I know a few months ago, I haven't done them in a while. I would just go sit in front of Merkguard, which is one of the end game big POIs where there's a lot of cool stuff. I, I wouldn't have to wait more than 10 minutes, 15 minutes, a group would come through. You know, I just hop in and follow them along and reap the rewards. Has, has that changed how y'all, how you control respawn rates there? Just the, the, the frequency of the, the, the random groups that are showing up? A little bit, but we, we got, it's something we have to be careful of because uh, we, you know, if we try to speed them up, nothing's worse than backspawns too close to you, especially when people start to get spread. So I feel like it's tuned pretty well now. Um, you can get a group through about, well, through most of the content, about every 30 minutes, the portals, uh, sometimes I think they spawn a little slower, which are there's portals inside of them, which are uh, sub POIs within the POI. Yeah. That's, oh, what, one thing you mentioned, just speaking of big groups, one thing you, you mentioned that uh, is worth talking about is, are the wars and the invasions, right? And, and I think that's another, that's another thing that really, I think early on, you all highlighted and really did stand out as a unique feature for the game. Have, have those, and I, I got to admit, I have been, I'm a, I, I, I like small parties and I saw so I'm either solo or with just a couple of people. I haven't been in a war yet. But have those evolved since since you started? Well, the big evolution is happening uh, in this next release. We're instancing them, which okay. we're expecting. Uh, we're, we should see a notable like Perf has been pretty good in them. We had some, we had some problems early on. Perf's been pretty good for the most part lately. This should be a pretty big jump uh, in Perf because now they're instanced. They won't be by other people in the area. Um, I, I I like the wars a lot. I've had a lot of fun lately playing the invasions, uh, probably because it's a little easier because people are better than AI, I think. But it's a lot of fun fighting hordes and hordes of these different AI and trying to protect your fort. But we've had a lot of fun with the wars, too, like like 50 versus 50. Uh, you know, it's it's something like we just added 3v3 arenas. Yeah. Right? And I always tell people you can't hide in a 3v3 arena like you can in a war. Wars are fun if you're not great, but it's 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 even better when you're great. And if you watch someone like Shroud, who uh, when I watch him play War, he's a streamer for people who don't know, he can just sit back and headshot so fast, so many people with a musket. It, it's it it just impresses the hell out of me. And then I go play, and I'm terrible compared to him. I'm like how the hell do you do it? Um, so I think they're pretty fun. Yeah, like it's cool. Well, you mentioned performance, and it is impressive. We have really haven't talked about how beautiful the game is, uh, but it is it, it is a for anybody who hasn't played, it is an absolutely gorgeous game. And when you think when I think about other MMOs and what I my expectations, uh, New World shattered them. You what you all do with the level of detail and the amount of just objects and as you said, uh, players in the world at a time is incredible. So how what was your approach there? Um, you built on the CryEngine, is that right? 
Yeah, well, it was at one point the CryEngine. I think it'd be we're so far removed <laughs> from that. We're we're we're, we're we, we our engine is called Azoth. A Z. It's the A Z engine. AZ okay. Azoth. Um, yeah, like, like it's funny when I talked about um, when I talked about uh, getting lost in the world and chopping down trees and stuff. Half the time, I'm just waiting for a sunrise or a sunset because they're those are just beautiful moments in the game, and our our team has done a great job. So the, the, the kind of opening approach was this painterly realism. Mm -hmm. We wanted everything to have very realistic shapes and form, but with the textures to be, you know, we didn't want photorealistic textures. We wanted to paint it, but we wanted painted to look fairly real. So it wasn't what I would call stylized, but they just landed in this place where everything just feels authentic. Yeah. And, but you still know you're in a game, which is kind of cool. Like, I, like I, I feel like I... Sometimes when you get too realistic, the immersion breaks. But if you keep it here, I think you can maintain that that immersion, and it, it just it just works together with the animations and everything. Like it, it feels, yeah, it feels great, and I I'm really happy with the way the the art came out, the look of the game, the aesthetic. It, yeah, it's unique for sure. And you know, you mentioned the, the, the sort of the real world versus game world. I, I know you're talking about art, but the other thing that I think you all do so well is your your distances. I know you it's, you can run faster on the roads, which is really nice, but it does feel like a it, you aren't laboring to get from one place to the other all the time, which is such an easy trap to fall into when you're making a big open world game, right? You've, it seems like the team has really thought through your fast travel, your, your standard travel to make it feel big, but not painfully big. Yeah, you can, run through, you can run through the world pretty fast. We've, we've lowered the cost of fast travel tremendously. So for people who want to, yeah. one of the reasons that was a harder decision for us is uh, you get these happy moments when you're running through the world and you see things that you won't see when you fast travel. Also, I, I find myself like, oh, I'm just going to run to Everfall or to Brightwood or wherever I'm going. And along the way, I see, uh, you know, a mine or a, something. Like you find things that you want to gather, and it creates this, <laughs> this alternate gameplay loop that's not just kill, 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 right? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that, like, made it harder to lower the cost of fast travel. We ended up doing it, but I still find myself running quite a bit because I do, like, I like to break up the monotony of constant combat in any game I play. Yeah, that, that's true. So just out of curiosity, or do you always have your PvP flag on? Not recently. Um, I did for a while, but recently I've, I've just been wanting to, like I said, I think I said this early, for like the last few weeks, I've just wanted to go out and gather and relax. And when I'm in PvP flag mode, there's no relaxing. You're constantly like looking over your shoulder and worried someone's going to get you. You know, it's funny though. I found that there's sort of this code of, at least in the server I play on, there's sort of this unspoken rule that if you're out there mining, you're not going to be ganked. Uh, even if you have your PVP flag on, at least that's what I found. Occasionally that happens and I'm really pissed, but I'm more pissed at myself that I I forgot to turn off my PVP flag. Um, I haven't found that code to be true where I play. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I guess I'm on a nicer, a nicer yeah. server. Or maybe we play at different times of day. I don't know. It, it could be. Uh, well, let, I, I do want to ask just a, a couple more questions about what it takes for ongoing support for you all, and and how you can keep the how you keep the team healthy, um, given that you're running a game that's twenty four seven, right? 
and you've got an online audience who is engaged, right? They're giving you feedback all the time. You're responding all the time. Um, how do you keep your team healthy? Well, we, um, we, one of the things that we talked about a lot, and this is a huge internal debate that comes up all the time, is do you do one team or two teams? Do you do a live team and a content, future content team? And we landed on live team because, or sorry, we went one team, just keeping them merged and rotating people in and out because uh, nobody wants, like, like as hard as it is, nobody wants to fix bugs all the time. People want to create also. So we rotate people into that mode. Uh, and we've put a lot of automation in. Like the last year, all the learnings, one of the big learnings is there's a lot of automation. So very, you know, six months ago, there was a lot more things that would pull people in like, oh my gosh, we have to stop and deal with this. That now is automated. Like these things can just like be fixed by like, do a reboot, do this, it'll automatically fix where that used to be manual in some cases. Um, and we also have processes in place now where we're like, okay, here's the, you know, here's the level of item that has to go into a weekly build versus a monthly versus a full, a full versus a full patch. And that's really helped. Like when people have clarity to the goals and to the plan on the team and they know what they're going to be working on, I think it helps them stay healthy and excited. Like sometimes it's really fun to go support live. Sometimes it's really fun to go work on a new thing. As long as you don't have to do that one thing all the time. I think it helps. It just makes life feel like like change is good. A little bit of change, a little bit of variation, but you don't want to feel like you're stuck in a always doing the same thing kind of rut because I think that starts to get starts to drag on people. Oh, for sure. How do you identify some a problem like that where somebody might not be saying anything and but they are they've been doing the same like working on the same specific feature forever or churning out the same props again and again. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Uh, it was, again, another thing that was a lot easier pre-COVID because you can see body language just by walking around. Now, you know, a lot of our one-on-ones, we try to, when we're talking to people, we try to make it not about the work and more about how things are going. Yeah. We have plenty of opportunity to talk about the work. And when you're talking about how you're, like, when you're, when you're making it not about the work, funny enough, you can kind of get a better read on how someone's doing with the work, if you're happy or not, if you're feeling okay, if they, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it all kind of ties back together. And I think we try to do a lot of that. And, and also just be, again, very direct. Like, how are you doing? I know you like production will catch, wow, they've been working on this thing for a long time. Let's talk to them and see how they're holding up. That's great. Makes makes a lot of sense. And have you, have you continued to bring in new folks onto the team? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I'm taking 15 people out to lunch next week who all started in the last probably month and a half. Wow. That's a great time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, fun, yeah. So actually that leads to another sort of mechanical question. When you look at the game's health, right. And, and have to make strategic plans about future features or folks bringing on folks to support the game. What are the key indicators for you for, for new world in particular? Can you, well, so people talk about KPIs all the time, right? In terms of hours played, number of concurrent players, uh, but New World's, you know, for me, I, I, I ask this because New World's different than say, I'll just use a more recent game that was released, Diablo Immortal, which is a five minute snacking game for me, right? I can go in, I can get my fix in five minutes. New World, I'm playing for hours at a time. So I'm wondering what, when you all look at, you know, how, how are we doing? What are the things you look at? Uh, Session length, number of sessions, NUR and CUR and RUR, right? Uh, new user retention. 
week over week generally, returning user retention. So anyone who hasn't been around in a few weeks that came back hmm. or current user retention. Hey, someone who's been playing, what's their retention rate look like? Are we making new player, are people who are new happy? Are people who are coming back happy? Are people who've been here happy? That's kind of how I think about those. Uh, and, and then session length and uh, sessions per week. Do you draw the five that we talk about? Well, do you, do you drive that level of happiness from those number of hours and the number of sessions? Is that things all together? Those at least frame the conversation. And if we see a number good or bad, we try to look at wow, have more people been playing this mode or that mode lately? Or is is our crafting numbers down? Like what? Then we try to have figure out what's driving that, and that's usually driven by our PM. Does a lot of that digging, and he comes, you know, he'll come back and say, well, it's this or it's this. Have you? Oh, that's awesome. I mean, and have you found any sort of consistency in terms of what causes increases or, or, or drops conversely? I wouldn't say consistency. It's, it's usually like a broken quest is usually a bad thing if it's early on, like if somehow a quest got broken in a patch or like great rewards, like Outpost Rush has been doing well. People really like the reward, you know, and we, so, so we look at, okay, this is a good reward. Like what makes this a good reward? How can we apply this to more places? Because I think a lot of times players are, are, they think about games much more efficiently than you'd expect. They literally like will break down. What's my best way of making coin per hour? What's the best way to get my rewards per hour? If I do this, I'm way more efficient than this. So I'll do this. I'll, I'll just run this over and over and over. And with the money I make, I'll go to the trading post and buy these things that I would have had to spend four hours on that I can get in two and a half hours if I do it this way. Like they literally break this stuff down. And we have people on the team who do that. And I'm like, wow, I... This I is, found this on the web. Ah, seriously. <laughs> I must have, must have um, Hey, speaking of which, um, <laughs> it leads, because I got I to ask this because I've been fascinated by being in the game and, and seeing what are uh, occasionally bots running around and, and chopping down trees or mining. How do you detect them as a, as a group? Oh, there's uh, well, we have a lot better than a few months ago. Like, like you start to learn behaviors and watch for that. So our, we have a couple of engineers that focus on bot detection. And you, I think, you know, you can a little bit by movement, by how they're behaving, by like looking at it, it's, it's pattern recognition for the most yeah. part. Right? Everything has patterns. And the more you see the same pattern, the more you can tell it's probably a bot. Um, I try I, every once in a while, I'll try to get myself flagged. Like I'll try to just do certain things to see. Because well, I've heard players say that they've been flagged as bots. And I'm like, really? You sure you're not botting? So a few of us will try to go out and act like a bot would act. And, and we're not able to. I, I tell you, I wish the dream would be if we could be 100% sure people were bots and just flag, and then automatically flag them on the spot. Yeah. We could kill them. I think that would be the funnest. But I imagine it's got to be an arms race, though, between people programming bots and the game creators because uh, – there, to your point about pattern recognition, right? There's a lot of ways to break pat break patterns uh, if you're a good programmer. So that that's got to be fun for your bot detectors. I mean, fun actually, literally fun. Like no, it, it is fun for them, but a lot of them would like also want to get on feature development too. So it's <laughs> it's not always fun. Like it's like it's almost like it's fun. Like a real hard crossword puzzle would be fun or a real hard, like, you know, something that's really challenging when you get that moment of aha, it feels great. Right. But I don't know if it's always fun chasing it. Were, were you coming into release? Were you all expecting a certain level of cheating and bots to just be there? Well, our studio had worked on uh, he goes back to star Wars galaxies and a lot of old games. 
So it would, he was beating it into our head religiously, like bots are going to be a problem. Bots, bots, cheaters, cheaters, this. And he, he, he really warned us. It was all over. He's super technical. Yeah. So he was trying to help with solutions uh, to drive all of that process. And, and even with all of that, we still like early on there takes a while. It takes a while to catch up. I think we're, we're ahead of the curve now, but it was, it's something like you said. They're, it's an arms race. They're going to they're going to evolve. We're going to have to evolve, and it's going to be this thing we're constantly funding. That's fascinating. I mean, I mean to me, it is it is fascinating. Uh, and and but I'm really glad to hear that that is you know, you, you are actively um, overcoming any any is, the issues like that will be endemic right for any online game. So when it comes to bots and cheaters, a huge focus. Huge. Yeah. Well, what just just a, a very broad question. What what advice? Just basic pieces of advice would you have for any team building their first live services game? Since you've been in it for a long time and just launched a massive one. Play it a lot. Get, a, get a, an alpha going. Challenge your alpha players. Find ways to reward them for turning in dupes, exploits, things like that. I think that that's something that I regret I didn't think of earlier was like, like literally find ways to incentivize the turn in of these things. Cause mm. my, my suspicion is people had found them and just saved them. Um, so make it rewarding for players to turn them in. Um, just build the hard systems, the telemetry system. Like again, thank, thank goodness for our studio head. Cause he made us build all of the telemetry tracking before launch. So every time something happened, we were able to go back and make it right. When an exploit happened, we were able to go fix all that. It took time and it was, took a lot of effort, but we always corrected the mistake. And uh, without him telling me that, I would not have probably been prepared for that. So I would share that knowledge with people. Build in the security systems. Like you just, it's, it's, it's hard because you're always gonna wanna put more features in. Trust me, I'm, I'm a big believer that uh, in MMOs, quantity is a form of quality. So yeah. you wanna make sure you have a lot to do. But, but those, those systems are really important that your, your engine, your tools, your tech teams are going to build. Like, like it's worth the funding. That makes sense. Uh, another uh, couple more broad questions for you. What is running an MMO taught you about human nature? I don't want to sound cynical, but it, it won't be cynical. It's people are going to find ways around anything you put in. Like they're just going to figure out things that you would have never thought about. Like, um, what's the phrase? Uh, shoot, something about the crowd. The wisdom of the crowd is no joke. Like they're going to figure. Like they're going to. They're going to be smarter. Like the big group is going to figure out things that the small group never could have thought of. Uh, I don't know that that's bad. It's just. It's just you've got to be prepared for it, and you can't be saddened when they do. You just got to kind of take it and roll with it. That makes sense. Well, finally, what excites you the most as you look ahead for uh, the next next year for New World? Well, right now I'm excited for uh, you know. First off, it's 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 always the thing you're doing next, right? So it's it's, it's our next release coming up. I, I can't wait to get the medley fair out there, music instruments, the new perks, the instance wars, and beyond that. Like I, I'm really excited to roll out this new part of the world and and, and let people see a different take on like an environment that we have not yet, you know, shared in the game, like, like something that's new, it's going to make the game feel a lot, a lot different and the new weapon. And 
you know, there is, there's a lot of other new stuff coming that I, I'm not going to announce just yet and in, in that release, but it's, it's going to be a big, exciting release. I'm really looking forward to it. Excellent. I'm, I'm excited to try it all out. So thank you for sharing with everybody. And thank you for taking the time and, and going deep on New World and, and your experiences and, and for offering some great advice to anybody who's building a live services game. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's an honor to be among the crowd of people you've talked to. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.